You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, hello again, everyone. You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I am your host, Doug Thorpe, and today we are going to talk about the topic of leadership. I've got a gentleman with me who has spent much of his adult life and career as a thought leader in that space, and as I let him uh, describe some of that, you'll really immediately appreciate the significance of it. So I, I, I am very excited about this, and I've got a number of questions I want to ponder with my guest. His name is Scott Jeffrey Miller. Scott, welcome to the show. Doug, thank you for the spotlight and the platform. Delighted to be here today. I really appreciate it. So, Scott, this is a bit of a tradition on this show. Tell everybody about your journey, and whether that's personal or professional, whatever you're willing to share, tell us kind of how you got to where you are right now. Well, I survived getting three young boys to school this morning in a blinding snowstorm in Salt Lake City. So that is my biggest triumph of this month. Uh, uh, let's see. I'm 54 years old. I'm married. I live here in Salt Lake City. We have three sons that are 8, 11, and 12. I lived here for close to 30 years. Uh, worked for the Franklin Covey Company for about 27 years. Of course, the leadership development firm founded by Dr. Stephen R. Covey, who wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I uh, lived all around the world for them, Chicago, London, here in Utah, uh, worked my way up from the front line to the C-suite and was the chief marketing officer for a decade, was the executive vice president of thought leadership for the firm for a long time. And although I'm retired from the executive team, I still host what is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast for them. It hits about 7 million each Tuesday, where like you, I'm privileged to interview fascinating people. Um, today's episode excluding <laughs> with me, but I get to interview great minds and authors and celebrities and business titans and best-selling authors and you name it. And uh, I'm also a speaker. I've, I've released six books myself, have three coming out in the next couple of years. Originally from Florida, I'm from Orlando. And so I worked for the Walt Disney Company for four years. And then when they fired me in my 20s, where else does a single Catholic boy from Orlando move? Well, of course, to Provo, Utah, where all the Catholics were. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. There wasn't a single Catholic in Utah 28 years ago, at least not in Provo. But I've had an amazing journey and have been honored to have been associated with that company nearly 30 years. And now my full-time job is I am a literary agent, a speaking agent, and a talent agent helping to shine the light on others' voices and help their thought leadership uh, pollinate around the world. That's a long, long 30-year journey there. No, that that's uh, that's powerful stuff, and and I want to level set a little bit and tell a quick story. I was introduced to Stephen Covey right as his book came out. He was doing the classic speaker tour to yeah. promote the book on the first iteration back in the eighties, and. Um, uh, my company paid for a group of us to go to his conference in the Houston area. Incredible experience, as I'm sure you know firsthand. Uh, the guy was a definite visionary and incredibly dynamic, charismatic leader. And I mean all of that in, in the best of ways. And it was uh, certainly a pivotal moment for me as a leader in my organization at the time and, and some new thinking about really important elements. And I know the Seven Habits book is still 
a big seller and a, and a hot topic in in uh, most markets. And I know I certainly refer to it from time to time in my own executive coaching business. It's uh, it's just a great foundation, and there's been a lot of other work after that. And so, uh, what what I would like to do, Scott, if we can, you as you alluded on your own podcast and through your work with Franklin Covey, you've you've had front row opportunities to sit with some of the greatest thought leaders on leadership around the planet. I was just re- reviewing your podcast lineups. You've had uh, guys, John Maxwell, Ariana Huffington. You've had a lot of really uh, marquee names come across your show. I want to start with a fundamental question for all those years in speaking about leadership. What are some of the trends that you've seen emerge and change in leadership thinking for the, I'll call it the modern economy. I think two things pop to mind, Doug. One is uh, leadership now is all about relationships, right? I mean, every company is now a technology company, whether you're selling lingerie or tulips or bagels, you're a technology company. And every company is in the same business. They're in the people business. They're in the relationship business. So I think this is important to, to reground ourselves in. First of all, I don't think everyone should be a leader of people. That makes me a little bit of a pariah in the leadership industry. I don't think everyone should be an anesthesiologist. and I don't think everyone should be a commercial airline pilot. And I don't think everyone should be a leader of people. But if you are going to lead people, then you need to become expert at developing relationships. That means you have to understand the difference between being efficient and being effective. You have to understand how to lean on your team to get results today in a way that still builds or retains trust to get results tomorrow. You have to be able to offer apologies. You have to be able to uh, be vulnerable and transparent and be relatable. I think it's super important that you grow your skills to be an expert at developing relationships because that's the business you're in. People don't quit their jobs. They quit bad bosses and corrupt cultures. And we know that to be a funny adage, but it's true. So let me put a bow on that. If you are a leader of people, you need to step out of your comfort zone and build your expertise on relationships. Secondly, I think post great resignation, post Me Too, post Black Lives Matter, post the pandemic, every leader now needs to have an individual, individualized style of leadership. You know, back in the 90s and the 2000s, you still had a little bit of a control and command style of leadership where everyone on the team needed to kind of cleave to your style, cleave and understand how to work with you. Now, it's the opposite, is you have to understand how to work with them. You have to understand what ignites everyone individually. What are their fears? What are their passions? What are their joys? What kind of stuff do they enjoy coming to work for? Not to absolve them of responsibilities in their own growth, but you've got to understand intimately what motivates each member of your team. Are they married? Are they single? Are they are they widowed? Are they divorced? Do they have a degree? Do they not? What are their strengths and areas of opportunity and how do you provide each person some feedback separately that's based on how they can grow and be a better them, not how they can grow and be a better you. And so this is why leadership is more difficult than ever now is, you know, the economy is not changing back the way it was, right? The creator economy is here to stay. I tell you so often when I hear people are leaving a job and you ask them, where are they going? They say, oh, I don't know. You're like, no, it's okay. You can tell me. It's all right. Where are you going? Well, I don't know. 
well, you just quit your job. You must know where you're going. No, I don't know. I mean, I'm not working for her anymore. I might, I might create an NFT. I might open up an Etsy store. I might trade crypto. Don't do that right now. But there's yeah. so many opportunities, <laughs> you know, to have side hustles. You know why? I don't own a home. I don't have a car. All I have is some college loans and I can defer those. You get the point. So there's just a, a there's a, a shift, massive shift. I think, and how leaders need to individualize their style to the members of their team. Yeah, I, I happen to agree with you. And one of the things you said, you know, you you alluded to the command and control. I actually went on record uh, a week or so ago in my own weekly blog. I wrote an article that said we have to kill command and control. It, it's just anybody that's is white knuckling holding on to that i think is is way off the mark in in today's evolving world well, it's being it's being killed because the new generation which is now the largest demographic in the workplace they won't tolerate it they'll right. just quit now right. you know, i don't think i don't think it's a case where you you know you you get on your knees and you meet every demand and every whim of every employee of course not right i'm not saying anywhere near that but the, the, the leaders that are still clinging to command and control, they won't have to stop being that way because they will be stopped. They well, will be stopped. I, I do qualify my position with one scenario. I said there's definitely situations where command and control makes sense. If I need to go in for heart surgery, I want my surgeon in total command and control of that, that OR. I don't want people winging it or doing per participative collaborative decision making while I'm on the table. I, w I want my surgeon to run everything. <laughs> well, I think also in business, there are times, not as your default style, right? I mean, at the end of the day, a leader's job is to set vision and strategy and to hold people accountable yeah. and to identify what behaviors you need to be uh, exhibiting to deliver these results, right? I need this much revenue from you by the end of the quarter, period, or you can't work here. So there, there, there is absolutely standards that are set and need to be met. But when it comes to how you communicate them, how you build trust, how you develop relationships, command and control is no longer even viable. Agreed. Agreed. And the other thing you said, and I, I happen, I, I got a feeling we're going to get to know each other and, and really like our alignment here. When you said not everybody's meant to be a leader. I, I I actually love that theme, and here's my big uh, bug. And I, I talk to my executive clients all the time about this. We we have an incredibly weird tradition in modern business. We look at our organization. We see an opening slot for a team supervisor out on the front line, and what do we do? We pick the best producer, the highest perceived intellect on the team, best salesperson, best accountant, best technician, whatever. And we say, poof, you're the supervisor. And they begin a journey of struggling through, trying to figure out what that means. And if they succeed, guess what? They get promoted. They get made the the unit head and then they, the department head and then the director of a region. And it's usually only at that point that they are invited to participate in some form of leadership development effort. And I, and I know that there are companies with exceptions to that, but that's pretty rare in, in my observation. And more importantly, those poor people that have gotten on that journey, they hit a wall in the middle management career of the company inferring an expectation of 
strategic decision making, not technical tactical execution, but strategic thinking, strategic contribution, and that person who's never been taught what that is tries to double down on execution, and yet they're being told you're not cutting it as a manager. And they're going, well, why not? I, you know, and as Marshall Goldsmith has famously said, what got you here won't get you there. And it becomes this double bind. And we see a lot of blowout and burnout at that middle management position after about three or four successful promotions. Beautifully said. I actually think it's even a more pervasive problem than you described. I think it's a cancer in most organizations, especially in technology companies where the only way to get promoted is to increase your span of control and lead a team of 10. To your point, um, HBR did a research study about seven years ago, and their, their, their research showed that the average age, Doug, someone receives their first promotion into a management position is age 30. Yet empirically, those same people don't receive their first formal leadership development training on average till the age of 42. And that there's this 12-year gap where people are running you know, havoc across their organization, not because they're bad people or they're narcissists or they're sociopaths. Only 10% of the population are actually sociopaths. The rest of us are just, you know, bringing the skills that we have and, 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 and usually causing havoc in the organization. You're absolutely right. This, this problem that exists in companies is that we promote our top individual producers. You promote the most effective dental hygienist to be the lead dental hygienist or the most creative digital designer to lead the creative department. And what happens is they get promoted and realize they have no idea what it means to lead people. Leading people is about having high courage conversations and giving people feedback on their blind spots and holding people accountable and terminating people and coaching them with difficult conversations. Not everybody wants to or is comfortable doing that. And what happens is to your point, they get into these jobs and they realize, I hate this. Or they're told, you're not good at this. And what do they do? Do they then step back down to their position? No, they leave the company. Who wants to get demoted or demote themselves? They leave the company. And now you've lost your top individual producers and you've lost your leadership development pipeline. Instead of doing that, to your point, Doug, is when you've got an opening, say, hey, you know, Doug, we think there's going to be a leadership position opening, and you've been our top salesperson for 12 quarters running. You're crushing it. Doug, I have a conversation with you about what it might be like if you were to ever move into a leadership track. In fact, Doug, let's draw a T-chart here. On the left-hand side are all the things you do extremely well as an individual producer. It's like, boom, 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 these nine things you do really well. Congratulations. I mean, you're crushing it over there. And Doug, let me just tell you, of these nine things, seven of them, you'll need to cease doing immediately if you move over into leadership, because those things won't serve you well leading people. And by the way, Doug, on this side of the T-chart, here are eight or 10 things you're going to learn to need to do pretty quickly. My sense is you probably will assimilate well into two or three of them, but six of them right now, I don't think you've been asked to do, but you're going to have to fundamentally change some things. And you get the point, right? Those conversations need to happen long before you promote someone to become a leader. Give them right. a real heads up right. on what it means. 
Yeah. I told the story a number of years ago. I was invited to come in and join a large uh, uh, construction and engineering company, Global Brand, and, and they had a workshop for first-time managers. Well, this is, uh, you're talking about the producers that are coming up to this level are all engineers by trade and schooling, high high performance engineers, and now they've been tasked to be managers. So the company had a prescribed program they wanted delivered and they asked me to come do it. So I was going through the book and we, we took a break at about the two hour mark and this line formed at the podium. And I, you know, I figured, okay, you know, I've done this before questions here, questions there. The first guy says, I don't want to do this. What you just talked about the last two hours, I don't want to do it. I want to be a, an engineer. You gave him a huge gift. A and huge I said, gift. well, I said, here, here's where I said, Okay, that's going to be a bigger question than I can answer right in this break period. Why don't you step over here? Let me let me take the next person. I know where this line. is going. <laughs> oh, the, line, line. the line stayed the same. They just all moved two feet to the right. right? <laughs> you know, and I got on the phone to my contact back at headquarters, and I said, Houston, you got a problem. You know? <laughs> I, know. I know. Doug, I love that story because I think – I think if I had to ask someone one question to determine whether or not you should lead people, it would be something like this. Do you take delight in the success of those around you? Do you find joy and validation than those even beneath you such that they might even pass you in title, in income, in fame, and in credit? And if you don't, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. That means you're a person. It takes a unique kind of person that really takes delight in the success of those around them. It's why most high-producing salespeople implode as sales leaders, because in the sense of Gallup Strengths Finder, their strengths are yeah. competition and significance, right? Mm -hmm. They want to be top of the leaderboard, and you can't have a sales leader in competition with her or his team. I fell into that trap. I was the top producer in my division for many years and got promoted, and I lacked the maturity, quite frankly, to take delight in the success of those around me. Didn't mean I was a bad person. It meant I was a bad leader, quite frankly, and had to grow into it. No one told me, Scott, when you move into being a sales leader, here's what needs to change. No longer is it your name on the leaderboard. Now, you're responsible ultimately for everybody's number, but not to like rush in and save the day, not to shame them, not to fix it for them, but to build capability. My problem as a leader early on was... I just fixed it and saved the day and never built capabilities and capacity in people because I liked saving the day. I liked the validation of also saving the day, but in the meantime, no one else built the skills. And so they took their PTO. They took their vacation. I stayed at the work as a martyr and a victim, blaming them probably into my thirties. Yeah. I wish I'd had this podcast to listen to back in my 20s and 30s. <laughs> oh, amen. Amen. I, I, as do I. And, you know, I got I got thrown into the fray early on. I was a commissioned army officer. And at, you know, 22 years old, I had I was appointed teams of people that were far more experienced. And, and, and all of my guys had just come back from Vietnam. So they would talk about battle grizzled and weary and all that. And uh, that got dumped in my lap. And. I I had a <laughs> master's degree in education really fast <laughs> doing that, but it was all good. It was all good. Thank you for your service.
Well, appreciate it. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. We're talking about leadership styles. Servant leadership is a, is a popular topic and is growing, I think, in acceptance to satisfy that dynamic you described about sort of the new way that people should think about leadership. And my first question about that is, there are those that I talk to that as soon as you mention that phrase, they they bristle and, and recoil and say, oh, you know, that, that's terrible. That's horrible. That's not a way to go. And uh, what, what has your experience been trying to talk to people about this notion of servant leadership? Well, I think service leadership has a lot of different connotations, right? I mean, people have made lots of definitions around that. I think as a leader, your top jobs are to recruit and retain talent. I, I, I understand mission, vision, strategy, and systems and structures. I get all that. I actually think your top job as a leader is to recruit and retain talent. And in fact, talent that is often more palpably noticeable than yours and to be comfortable and not eclipsed or to have to be the genius in the room to quote Liz Wiseman, your job is not to be the genius, but to be the genius maker of others. That's first. I think a servant leader ignites the genius in others and doesn't uh, become jealous of that or feel eclipsed. I think the second role of a leader is to provide people feedback on their blind spots. I mentioned this earlier, is to move outside your comfort zone and help people understand what are their perhaps well-intended or self-defeating behaviors that are that are limiting their influence. That takes skill and empathy. It takes you to be a servant leader, to have uncomfortable conversation with people that you might not want to have and they might not receive well. You can be a transition figure in people's lives. When I hear servant leadership, I think of it metaphorically and literally. You know, if you're a leader of an organization, another one of your key goals, jobs, responsibilities is to clarify expectations, is set clear expectations. This is what has to happen by the end of the month. You must deliver this by the end of the quarter is to set unequivocally clear expectations and hold people accountable to them. And understand what's going on in their world. Understand what their fears and their passions are. Understand what's happening at their house, right? Is their teenage son vaping? Is their marriage ending? Is their in-law moving into dementia? I mean, real life is real life. And people are bringing it into work. Now, you still have to hit the expectation of the quarter or whatever your you know goal is from X yep. to Y by mm -hmm. when. You must deliver this to that by when. But I also think servant leadership can actually be literal. I have some great stories of how the CEO of Franklin Covey, Harvard Business School graduate, climbed the Matterhorn, done the Ironman 30 times, has a billion dollars, whatever, whatever. I have great stories about he literally has served people because that's where his heart and his passion is. And then when he's done serving you breakfast, genuinely, we'll have a meeting to discuss where you are against your deliverables for the quarter. And those two things don't matter to each other. They're separate things, right? One is not a manipulative te technique to butter you up for a high courage conversation. No, those are completely separate things. I am serving you breakfast because I don't believe as the leader, I should be in the front of the parade. I should be in the back of the parade. I don't think that's always appropriate. I think sometimes that can be taken too far. I think you can have, you know, a little bit of too much self-deprecation and too much humility, and sometimes that's a bit syrupy. But I, I, generally speaking, I'm a, I, I don't find fault at all with the concept of servant leadership. Yeah. 
No, neither do I. And and uh, I've uh, got a very good friend. We were actually college roommates. He retired as a brigadier general in the Army, and we did a show a number of years ago, and we were talking about that. And he said, Doug, he said, stop, think about it. They call us service members to be in the military. We are all serving and yeah. servant leaders, and that's what we do. So I, even having done it myself, I thought about that, and I had not had that revelation about it, thinking about it, but but that's exactly the, the heart yeah. of it. Yeah, I don't think you being a servant leader means you're subservient or you're there only in service of, right? I, 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 I lead a team. I had a very high courage conversation with the person this morning and said, hey, your lack of thinking through that problem just cost me $2,400. I got a check today for $2,400 because you didn't ask two more questions. And I had a real high courage conversation with him about that to say, hey, you keep asking me, are there more things you can do to contribute? And I keep saying to you, yeah, you need to be really thoughtful about this. So he role played some coming projects he's working on. And I didn't want to take that extra 10 minutes role-playing this, but in service to him from my own experience, I did just that. Literally, as I'm getting ready to write a 2400 hour check out of my pocket because of a mistake he made, Christmas time, right? Would have rather spent that on some champagne or toys. But that's part of being a leader, right? Is growing capability around you. And that 15 minutes or so role-playing to build his skill, I think was absolutely in service to him. Also in service to me, but in service to his future career. His future career won't be with me. He's very secure, very competent. He'll, he'll eclipse me in his life, young guy, in his you know, late 20s or so. That's, I think, a, re a reasonably good example of servant leadership, investing time that also may not immediately benefit you, but will benefit that person. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and to your point about leaders creating the best in others, uh, I was on a show as a guest yesterday, and I was asked a question about that, and I think it uh, amounted to, uh, what do you think is the ultimate measure of a leader? And I said, well, in the business sense, what I would say is, if you as a leader have developed a team that becomes organically self-fulfilling and, and able to grow, and, and by that, I mean, if your team is so excited about working on in your group and what you're doing that they go out and recruit others to come join, you know, they go tell others, you can't believe what we've got going on over here and you've got skills. You could join us. You could help us 2X and 3X what we're doing. Yeah. Why don't you come talk to my boss? I think that's a real litmus test for how you're doing as a, as a leader. I agree. I agree. Franklin Covey has a mantra where they like to call them place a workplace of choice for achievers with heart. And I think it's it's a good it's a good uh, not not their mission, but it's kind of their mantra. Uh, nicely said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Scott, I'll tell you what, I think it's time for us to take a quick commercial break, as, as we are known to do. So, uh, folks, hang with us. We've got a lot more to unpack and share with you. So we'll be right back. Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness, too. And the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. Doug Thorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. 
Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's Doug, T-H-O-R-P-E.com. All right, everyone, we're back. Uh, you are listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Today, I'm talking with Scott Miller. Scott is, uh, you could say, a Franklin Covey guy. He was with the company for many, many years. He was the uh, head of their thought leadership. And, of course, the, the key topic is leadership. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, Scott, we talked about a lot of great things in, in the front half I, I do want to visit just for a minute um, back to the original statement, not everybody's meant to be a leader, but what about those people that do in fact show up and exhibit just some incredibly innate, inbred leadership abilities or leadership capacities? What do you say they need to do to help polish that, sharpen it, enhance it, et cetera? Well, I'm not sure I've ever met anybody like that. I don't know that I've met anybody that has innate leadership capabilities. Now, I know you don't mean that necessarily literally. Uh, you know, if, if you had to ask me what is the number one attribute of a solid, great leader, I probably would say self-awareness. It's not a technical skill. It's not being charismatic or energetic or being able to paint a great vision. All those things are often important, although not always. You can be a great leader and be an introvert, be a great leader and be very charismatic. You'd be a great leader and have, you know, um, natural mathematical skills, which I don't. But I actually think the biggest stumbling block to being a great leader, to developing relationships, to hark back to our opening conversation, if you believe you are in the business of relationships with your employees, with your vendors and suppliers and customers and so on, which you are, newsflash, then you need to know what it's like to be in a relationship with you. You need to know what it's like to work with you and for you. What's it like to be on a one-hour Zoom call or a four-hour Zoom call? What it's like to work a trade show booth with you or to work on a project with you. <laughs> you need to know what it's like, you know, to go on a company trip with you. For that matter, you should know what it's like to be married to you, to yep. be parented by you, to live next door to you, to work on a church or mosque or synagogue committee with you. Self-awareness is the reason I've terminated everyone in my career. I've, I've hired hundreds. I've terminated dozens of people. I've never once terminated someone, Doug, on their lack of technical competence. They had the degree. They had the skills to do the job. They just did not know how to get along with other people. They didn't know how to collaborate. They didn't know how to apologize. They didn't know how to... Uh, balance their need to win with their need to sometimes synergize. They were always right. And it was often because someone hadn't told them. Someone hadn't sat them down and said, hey, Doug, I need to give you some high courage feedback. I, I, I mean, declare my intent. My intent is not to diminish you or to embarrass you. My intent is to help you see a blind spot you have. We all have them, including me. In fact, right now you're probably thinking about mine, but Hold those for a moment, Doug. <laughs> and that's how you build your self-awareness, right? Is you you prove yourself willing to be open, make it safe for others to give you feedback. So I answered your question a little bit differently. Even those who are innately great leaders, if you believe in that concept, I'm not sure I do, but they show leadership capability. You have never built enough self-awareness. Here's a great example. I'm a high energy person. I get up at four o'clock every morning. I write my column for Inc. Magazine. I write my, 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 my LinkedIn post. I, I'm, 
a prolific book publisher, and I work hard all day long, kind of natural energy. It's annoying to some people. In fact, really annoying to some people. I can be very fatiguing. And my voice level is usually right here, all day long, really loud, including if I'm speaking to 7,000 people on an auditorium or I'm sitting next to my wife driving the car. My voice is always up here. And <laughs> I, it's natural for me. My wife will say, why are you screaming? Like, I'm not screaming. I'm just passionate. No. And so I have to be self-aware of sometimes I need to slow down and lower my voice and connect to those people that right now find me actually more credible than when my voice and my energy is always up here because this is quite natural to me. And I'm not aware of that unless I'm open to people giving me feedback on it. So I want to kind of just like drill that idea, be working on yourself awareness. That means you've got to be open to feedback. It's got, you've got to be great at not disputing it, denying it, deflecting it, or, oh, you know, Doug, Doug drives me crazy in that meeting. It's why I always am late. Or whatever. No, no, no. It's not Doug we're talking about. It's Scott. We're talking about you. Yeah. Separate, separate your ego from <clears throat> your need to be better at developing relationships. I think that's a good point. And, and the only reason I, I raised the fundamental question about, you know, in academia, there's a raging debate. It's been around for decades. You know, are leaders born or bred? And, uh, you know, I've been on both sides of it. I've been involved in projects that have attempted to study it and prove it one way or the other. And uh, just for the public record here, I, I happen to believe there are parts of the population that are, in fact, born with some natural gifts and abilities to fit into a leadership role. Maybe I'll mm -hmm. say it that way. And, and what they need is some polishing and, and refinement of what those fundamental skills may be. It's not a lot different from kids are born that become natural athletes and versus those that don't. And I, I think there are, I think that does apply to leadership and I've seen it play out in those that I've coached. The, the one anomaly that's interesting Usually my first warning sign as a coach that I'm talking to someone that is in fact born with natural ability, in the early going, they don't get anything we're talking about. I'll, I'll, I'll bring up various leadership skills, attributes, and, and framework ideas that go into it, and they're sitting there going, of course, of course, hmm. of course, of course. And that has become, I've, I've done enough of them now with several hundred executives, uh, possibly in the thousands that I've had an opportunity to work with, that I've determined that that's, that's sort of my yardstick. When I start hearing that kind of feedback in our early coaching, yeah. I go, have you ever thought about yourself as a natural born leader? And, huh. and usually huh. the answer is always no. So it's interesting you bring up the awareness question because part of what I have to do is actually get them to celebrate what it is they've already got in their toolkit so that then they can agree to start advancing that for the good of the, I mean, they're all about greater good. I mean, they're all over the ideas of, of what their team can and should do. And, and none of them that I've talked to have ever had any sort of ego about, I need to be at the top of the leaderboard that they're, they never show up with that. So it, it is an interesting dynamic. Um, with that said, I want to totally shift gears and I want to raise the topic of 
leadership challenge in the marketplace in respect to the generational differences in the workforce. I, I hear it time and time again. I hear leaders lamenting the frustration with, you know, I'm 45 years old and I don't know how to manage millennials. Or I'm 50 years old and I don't know how to manage any of these people because of their generational biases. And, you know, you've, you've talked to many, many people, many, many different audiences. What do you hear and see in that regard? Oh, I think you're right. It's a common reframe and frustration. I actually think we might have we might have overcomplicated it. And I don't mean to be glib or trite here, but I, I face that. I'm 54, right? So I am leading people that are of different generations, two or three different generations to me, older and younger. Uh, you know, it comes down to a couple of fundamental principles, right? One is, do you care about the person? Two, do you have a curious mindset? Do you have a growth mindset? Three, do you realize that you aren't always right? Four, do you realize that your experience may or may not be relevant anymore or as relevant as it was? Five, are you mentoring them? Six, are you being open to being mentored by them? Seven, are you, are you willing to recognize that not everybody buys their shoes at Cole Haan and has them shined in the airport and replaces the laces twice a year? Some people think that Birkenstocks are shoes. And so really it's about, you know, understanding are your values their values and do you have to impose your values on them? And so I would probably have a conversation with myself around the facts are the facts and my opinions and my experiences, my feelings are these. And let's not conflate my feelings with facts. Does it really matter what this person wears to the office? It may well matter for your brand. Yes, I've had lots of conversations around what is and is not appropriate footwear for the office, especially in days that clients are in. I have to really understand, does it really matter where you fit physically, sit physically? Just because I was raised, you didn't come to work at Disney at 801 and you didn't leave your cubicle with your jacket off, right? These are things I was taught deeply inculcated belief systems around what it meant to work. Now, I have people that work for me that are in Dallas, it was tough early on. These people run circles around me. It takes them it takes them 30 minutes to do what might have taken me three hours to do. And I have to change my mindset. I have to recognize that a leadership competency is nimbleness and agility. Does it have to be my way? Are there not different ways to get to the same issue? At the same time, this person this morning cost me $2,400 because they didn't think through the problem properly. So I think at the end of the day, Doug, when you're leading people of different generations, you got to really ask yourself, why am I clinging to this? Why is this so important to me? Is it because of my own insecurity? Is it because this is the way I learned it? Is it because this is what my world is and I feel comfortable and safe with this? And by the way, there are some things as a leader that you can prescribe, right? Here is our sales reporting pipeline. Here's the criteria for grading someone an A or a B or a C, right? And here's the close ratio and here's your goal. And these things are not open to interpretation because this is how we manage our, our forecasting pipeline process. Yeah. Birkenstocks, bring them on. I hate them, but if you got to wear them, it's fine. But here's our forecasting process. Now, if someone comes in and says, hey, Scott, can I ask you some questions about your forecasting process? Sure. So I am sure you didn't just think this up last week. Can you tell me why this is the process? And can I ask you some questions around, would you be open to this experience on it? Yeah, I'm open. Talk to me about it. At the end of the hour, ask yourself, is this, would this allow them to forecast more accurately? 
Or is this the way that allowed me to forecast more accurately 20 years ago or such? And in some cases, I'll hear someone out and say, I appreciate that. Thank you. There are some things you are not aware of. You work at 6,000 feet. I work at 60,000 feet. And there are other things that you may or may not be privy to as to why I'm going to continue to have this be the forecasting process. I'm going to ask you to extend the same courtesy to me that I just extended to you, which is to assume that there might be some things that I'm aware of that you are not aware of. You are not on a need-to-know basis, and I am on this topic. Please continue to come back in my office and share ideas. And I'll tell you, here's some good advice. I will probably have more credibility in considering your ideas in correlation with you continuing to hit your quarterly deliverables. Keep crushing them. And I promise you, I'll continue to be open to your ideas. And then do. Now, that might have been a diatribe, but I think a lot of issues can be resolved with, as the leader, really asking yourself, what, what's dying the sword and what's not? Pick your, yeah. you know, pick, your, pick your, you know, you can win the battle, but lose the war. And a lot of people lose or win the battle. The battle is the issue, but they lose the war, which is culture and influence and trustworthiness and having people not be afraid to come to you, having people not be scared about your response. I hope yeah. that was helpful. Oh, it was. And actually, you've, you've added a lot of color that I've honestly struggled with because my fundamental question to my own answer to... Um, leaders that I talk to, when they tell me they're struggling with the generational differences, I hit them pretty much straight on, and I, uh, I'll challenge them first by the idea that that's just a convenient excuse. And have you done the work to do all those things you just described? You know, to check your own self-awareness of what you believe about these values, principles, and practices, put that in perspective before you start judging how this other person is showing up and what they're doing. And are there standards and expectations that need to be met? Absolutely. However, you've got to have that discussion with that person. We onboard people, we run them through a you know half-day workshop on uh, welcome to the company, here's your security badge, here's your passcode and all that. But does the immediate boss and supervisor ever really have a specific talk about expectations and obligations? In fact, Doug, that, 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 that was, I, I was envisioning certain parts of my career when you were saying it. I would add to that. I would add to that and say, it's a convenient excuse. And it can be uncomfortable. As a leader, you've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Sit down with someone and say, hey, listen, you know what? There's like 35 years between us. And that doesn't make me better or worse than you or vice versa. We both have skills. We both have, you know, talents. By the way, the younger generation is the most educated generation in the history of mankind. And so you have to appreciate what their education is as well. And I think sometimes it's just best as a leader to say, hey, can I ask you a question? Or, or can, I, can I just share something? Is I'll bet you I'm hard to relate to. I'll bet you it's hard for you to relate to me. And I'll be honest it's hard for me to relate to you, but I think what's going to make your and my careers work well together is our ability to pre-forgive each other, to forgive each other. We're going to say things that get lost in translation. We're going to have different references culturally and socially, but you know what? I'm going to pre-forgive you. I'm going to ask you to pre-forgive me. I'm going to assume good intent. I want you to assume good intent with me. I want you to you know, feel like I'm inherently smart. And I'm going to feel like you're inherently smart, and let's laugh about it. When we're like when we're talking at each other, let's just like call it out and laugh about it. 
Now, you can do that without minimizing your positional power and influence, right? You're still the boss. You're not the buddy. You are the leader. But I think, if, again, if you, if you fundamentally believe you're in the relationship business, then you talk differently to your grandmother than you do your son. You talk differently to your neighbor than perhaps you do a board member, right? You can treat people differently and still treat them equitably and fairly. Right. I think that's where good leadership comes in is just being able to build a relationship with anyone. I I think I can build a relationship with almost anyone. Voted for Trump, voted for Biden. Let's have lunch, right? You're you're Syrian versus an Iraqi or Israeli. Let's have lunch. Let's find some common ground. Let's laugh about why we believe what we believe and our differences. And I'll bet you will find common ground quickly because that's my job as a leader. Right. I couldn't have said it better. I, that, that's such a, a powerful thought. And um, I've got I've left you speechless. <laughs> I've got all hardly, you have. You hardly, have. Hardly, I, hardly. I got so many other questions crashing together. It's not easy, I, I, right, Doug? It's not I'm, easy. I'm not an expert in relationships. I'm actually an introvert masquerading as an extrovert. You know, I hate small talk. I hate cocktail parties. I hate <laughs> bars with loud music. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. But I'm in the relationship business. So I have to move outside my comfort zone. And sometimes I say, oh my gosh, I hate the corporate Christmas party. I hate it with the four guys dancing and the tight suits up there and the jokes. Like I want to crawl out of my skin. Okay. It's 90 minutes once a year. I got to put on a good face. I can joke about how much I hate it. Everybody knows I hate it. I think sometimes it's important for leaders to say, Can I confess something to you? I think it's important for leaders to say the following. Let me confess something to you. I know that part of my job is to build relationships. And quite frankly, I'm not great at it. I admit it. I can be socially awkward. I can be overly talkative or overly quiet. Whatever your excuse is, just say that to your people. Just say, I know I'm in the relationship business. I'm not an expert at it. Some of you are. What I am expert at is this, this, and this, and that's why I am in this position. But so I'm going to ask you, if you ever find a time where you're confused about something or I seem like I'm creating something into an urgency that isn't because I love the adrenaline, whatever it is, just come and talk to me about it and we can have a conversation. I might deny it. I might admit to it. I might admit to it four seconds later than you want me to or four minutes or four days. We're all humans. I think those kind of conversations they breathe such transparency and vulnerability and authenticity. Everyone wants to work for a boss that says, I know I'm supposed to be great at developing relationships, but it's not my strength and I'm really working on it. So I might need you to pre-forgive me sometime. Everyone wants to work for that person. I agree. I agree. And and there is one last topic I want to get into with you, and, um, and and that is the leader's role in creating clarity. And here's my premise. Oh wow! I've started arguing or, or making the case. Arguing is not the right word, but I've started making the case with with my executive clients that. For all the many years I've been in the work world, and I know there's thousands of stories about the employee that was just uh, way off in the bell curve and they had a bad attitude and bad motivation, et cetera. But the vast majority are not that. So here's my premise. I think if you've done 
a reasonably good job hiring your people, and I know that's a big if, but most get pretty good at it eventually. That person you've hired comes to work wanting to do the right thing. As one person recently said, nobody wants to show up and suck at their job. They want to do the right thing. So it's the leader's role to create clarity, define what the right thing is, define what a win ought to look like, help keep that clarity in front of your employee. If you do not, or if you overcomplicate the situation, another famous quote is, a confused mind says, no, your employees are going to freeze. They're not going to do wrong things. They're going to do fundamentally nothing because they don't know what the right thing is. Does that make sense? I was hoping to disagree with you on one topic today, but this will not be it. <laughs> because nearly all, if not all, conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. And as a leader, you have to have an obsession with this, right? It's clarifying expectations, exactly what that means. You might even need to use different words. You might need to say it over and over and over and over again. And then when you're fatigued, you might be halfway there because you've been thinking about it in the shower, on the weekends, on the golf course, on the tennis court, on your hunting. You've been thinking about it and role-playing and practicing it in your mind. And then you've said it once at your town hall or once in the meeting. Well, yeah, that's done. And I know they've heard it for the first time. You've heard it for like 60 times or six weeks. I, I just, I probably could not agree with you more passionately. Nearly all, if not all, conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. You thought they were going to do this and they thought you were going to do that. And, and, or you thought you were clear on this and they weren't clear on that. And honestly, as a leader, your job is probably to just pedantically over-clarify. In fact, what I often do, when I'm, when I'm setting a goal that is not open to interpretation, we will deliver $600,000 of EBITDA in the fourth quarter to the CEO, whatever it is. And I'll lay out the strategy. I'll then go around the room and say, hey, Micah, I want you to repeat that goal back to me. Use your own words, but I want you to repeat it back to me. And sometimes they'll say it even more beautifully than I would. Or they'll say something like, no, 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 no. Actually, no, it was, it was, we're going to keep the SG&A to 48 million. That's important because if our SG&A is high and our gross margin, you get the point, right? This is important, guys. We cannot overspend this budget or whatever it is. We go around the room and I say, is anyone got any confusion? I'm not debating whether or not the goal is the goal. The goal is not negotiable. This is the time. I got an hour. I got two hours. Let's talk about it. Who's got some problems? And let people surface them. Well, Scott, that goal is way too high. How did you possibly negotiate that goal? Okay, well, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. Rather you tell me now than tell me two days prior to the quarter the goal was too high, right? Let's talk about that. Why do you think it's too high? What could we do? How can we fill in the gap? What should our gap closure plan be? Whatever the goal is. Clarity right up there with recruiting, retaining people, and giving people feedback on their blind spot. If someone is confused about what you've said, that's about you, not about them. Yeah, I agree with you totally. And and using even the language you were describing there to to make that point about clarity, and, and it reminded me of my days in banking. I worked for a large, very successful regional bank, and I spent twenty years there. And one of our 
key elements of success was an incredibly rigorous budget and planning cycle that we did every year. And it was, and there were a lot of those kind of discussions, gee boss, that seems too high or too strict or too this, too that. But at the end of the day, we all had clarity. The book got closed. We said, this is the mark. This is where we're going. And very long story short, guess what? Our bank ran off 64 consecutive quarters of earnings growth. Sixteen-year track record. Did wow. did we did we suffer some economic downturns? We're in Texas. We had oil bust. Right. We had real estate right. busts. That's an oil crisis. Yeah, we had booms. We had all kinds of things during those sixteen years. But our plan made us successful. Wow. And if you're going to improve earnings, you've got to have a more aggressive plan in the next cycle. It, it's just it's the basic math. There's no other way around it. One of the I know I know our time is up here. One of the big takeaways I have of a, a decade plus of mentoring under Dr. Covey was this idea he used to call use your R and your I. Use your R and your I, your resourcefulness and your initiative. I teach it to my three sons all the time. Okay, we've got to hit, you know, four million and what what gross top line revenue this month. And we talk about what our plan is to get there. Maybe well, maybe we have a plan to get to three point two million. We have a gap of eight million or eight hundred thousand. What I mean, I'm throwing numbers out. My point is now we'll spend an hour or two hours using our resourcefulness, our initiative to figure out how will we build a pipeline of one and a half million so that it nets out to 800 grand. That is our deficit, right? How do we, how do we have a plan A and a plan B and a plan C? And what are all things we could do ethically and legally to have a cushion there by using our resourcefulness and our initiative? And that has allowed me, I think, to gain much of the success I have in my career is just taking insane responsibility for my own commitments, making and keeping commitments, and constantly teaching others, and even challenging myself to use my resourcefulness and my initiative. It's been a huge gift Dr. Covey gave me. That's amazing. Well, Scott, we are out of time. You're correct. And thank you thousand times thank over you. for sitting in with us. I always like to ask my guests, tell folks how they can get a hold of you if they're interested in either subscribing to a list or yeah. learning more or whatever. Well, I'm hard not to find. I'm on every social platform, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn. You can uh, visit my website, scottjeffreymiller.com. All of my books are on sale at every uh, retailer, uh, online and uh, bricks and mortar, management mess to leadership success. Everyone deserves a great manager, master mentors. I have a new book coming out in the summer called The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentoring. Uh, I'm kind of hard not to find. <laughs> <laughs> not surprised. And then just in closing, I'll say this was great. I wish you could have had a little higher energy level. That would have been nice. But I'm working on myself. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, Scott, again, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Doug. Appreciate and it. folks, as we close, I want to remind everybody, we do have a video version of this. If you're listening on your favorite streaming service, we're on YouTube, channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there, grab the video. You can you can see the energy in action uh, talking to Scott, and uh, would love to have you hop over there. Uh, subscribe to the channel, leave us a like, give us a comment. We'd love to know what you're thinking. For now, we're going to sign off, say goodbye, and hope to see you again real soon. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.